I wonder if any of you know the names of any of the animals at the Central Park Zoo. Uh, and if you're thinking about Alex the lion or Melman the giraffe, you know those don't count. Uh, Madagascar was a fictional film. Those weren't actual members of the zoo. Uh, one animal that was famous for a period in the 1990s was Gus the polar bear. And Gus became famous for being the typical New Yorker. Uh, he started to exhibit some unusual behavior. He would swim in a figure eight, which initially sounds like something uh, kind of cool to go and see, but he would just keep doing it. Uh, up to 12 hours a day in this weird obsessive pattern. That was his work, just doing the figure eight. And it became concerning enough that they did what you do in New York. They hired a therapist. <laughs> uh, and the therapist did two things. One, I'm not making this up, put him on Prozac. Uh, a medication, and secondly, gave him enrichment activities, gave him some things to do that would keep him engaged, uh, and uh, for the most part, making sure that instead of this one activity, that he would have a variety of activities, and it actually helped. There was improvement. Um, but he became known as sort of the, uh, the prototypical New Yorker, because really, isn't that all of us that were sort of spending 12 hours a day in this obsessive cycle of work and, and, and we're, we're needing to do something, um, often self-medicating in some way, and some kind of distracting, uh, and we need help. Well, I was reading a book by Alan Nobles uh, called You Are Not Your Own, and he talked about this phenomenon that actually explains what was happening with Gus called zookosis. So zookosis is actually something that they seem to have found uh, pretty typical with certain animals that are used to living in the wild. What happens when you put them in zoos? And there are certain, uh, there's a certain grouping of behaviors. They're not all identical, uh, but there might be uh, a rhinoceros or something like that that just paces in a circle. Um, or a giraffe that just all day long keeps biting the fence in some, some obsessive kind of way. Um, uh, various kind of behaviors that, that are becoming concerning to, to uh, those who run the zoos. And um, one of the things that Nobles talks about is the interesting fact that, that the zoo in some ways is designed by, by the experts to be the best kind of environment you could think of creating for a particular animal. Now, granted, you don't have the space and the freedom, and so it is an artificial environment, but you're taking the best research, the best understanding, and saying, we will create the best habitat that suits a particular animal in terms of climate, surroundings, food. And from a human perspective, you'd think many of these are genuine improvements. So for the giraffe, maybe it would be nicer to have more land to roam on, but I would think it's also nice to not have exposure to uh, predatory carnivorous animals. That you think um, having the lion fenced in a different section is an advancement for the giraffe. The giraffe's life has gotten better. And yet, in that uh, more idealized environment, um, something is exhibiting um, that it's not working because it's not the environment for which they were created. And what Nobles does is he reflects on, on us and our interaction with the world as we seek to build our own world, we are making genuine improvements, but uh, even as we improve things, we find new symptoms of something that's saying, there's still something not right. And what Noble says is, well, there's the world that was 
uh, created and there was a, a way that we were supposed to live in the world that is missing. And therefore, all of the other advancements are, are not really deeply satisfying us. You could think for yourself, uh, if we were to design a world for human beings, what would it look like? And we have done that. It's a virtual world. Um, and so maybe you can't touch and taste in the same way, but that actually has advancements. If you've been on certain subway cars where uh, somebody who didn't get to the bathroom at, at, in time, um, sometimes it would be nicer to be on a virtual subway than the actual subway. Uh, and so there are certain advantages to being online. And so um, maybe if you're a self-conscious person, you realize that, that here's, a, here's a, a sphere where you could you have a little bit more control of how you present yourself to the world. So you could practice your angle and uh, work on, on exactly the facial muscles that will give you the expression to capture that moment. And if you haven't captured it with a good photo, you could tweak it and um, put it up there. Isn't that better than showing up in person where you have that measure of control? But one of the things that in this phenomenon of zoocosis is it's great that certain animals aren't being hunted and being uh, sought after and they're, and they're giving uh, a regular diet. But it's interesting to think about is a lion meant to have a crowd of human beings staring at them for hours all day. I don't know that it affects the lion at all, but it's an interesting question. That's kind of not how lions are supposed to be. And so, so here's this crafted image that we're supposed to put online, which uh, in some ways is better than our 20 classmates and how they see us in a way that we can't control, but were we meant to be seen by two or 300? They're then going to evaluate whether or not they like the image that we've put up. And it's better, but it's also um, manifesting some problems in that the improvements are not bringing greater peace or greater love or greater patience, but, um, but greater trouble, greater need to self-medicate and to occupy ourselves with activities that uh, keep us distracted. And so, um, in the fall and in the winter, we're looking at First Peter, the New Testament book of the Bible, that gives a vision for a way of life that is deeper. It's a spiritual way of life that's not an escape from the physical world, but it's, it's bringing back into the world something that's been lost, something that because it's unseen and we haven't had in full possession, we, we don't even know what we're missing, but we have an intuition that says something's missing, something's not right. And in First Peter, there's an encouragement to a strengthening that comes from within that then readies us for the world we inhabit that doesn't solve all of our problems quickly and instantly, but, but starts to heal, starts to strengthen us. And in a time period where uh, there are forces that are pushing against us and through our willpower and through our skills, we've been able to, to, to through much of our, our seasons of life, push our way forward. Now is a period where more and more people are just getting worn down. And so... So rather than um, uh, the world energizing us, we're finding that the world is, is uh, causing an erosion. Well, First Peter offers us something, the teaching of it, what, what, what we're pointed to, that gives us more strength so we can go out into the world that's pushing back against us and, and keep going. And so last week, as we began in the series, um, we're, we're making a slow entrance into the book, and so today we will not make it beyond verse 3. But last week we, we were just in those opening words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why should we listen to this person who will be our teacher? And we looked at one passage in the, in the book of Luke, but if you read the Gospels and Acts, you can, you can see Peter, who he was, and, and how he developed and how he changed 
on the day that the Spirit came to him and, and how that change um, uh, took shape in his life. And it gives credibility as we read through this book. We find that the themes in this book are not just ideas that he thought about, uh, but it's his reflection on his own life and how the teachings of Jesus became a reality uh, and that he himself was transformed. And so we're going to walk through this book with him as our teacher. Uh, last week we considered who's writing to us, who's teaching us. This week we're going to consider who he's writing to. And he writes to a group of churches, um, but, but it was a larger group than perhaps he was aware of. Here we are looking at the book. And the church throughout the ages and the church throughout the globe has had this as part of their um, encouragement, their instruction, the words of this apostle sent, appointed by Jesus. And today what I want to note is this description has uh, every beginning in verse 2 where, where he writes to elect exiles. Um, Peter, Peter talks about a reality where there's been a scattering, a dispersing of humanity, but we're, we're called back, we're invited back. And, and that welcome back is what, what brings a renewal. It, it restores something that we've been lost, something that uh, we, we have lost and something that's been missing. And so I want to talk about those two things, the fact that there is a scattering and there is a call back. And so I'm going to begin with the scattering uh, and in verse 2. Um, the book is written to, the, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And here I want to focus on that phrase, exiles of the dispersion. So here's a group of churches. It's not one church. It's not one big united church, but it's a, it's a group of churches scattered around a region. It would be Asia Minor, uh, modern geography. It would be Western Turkey. And so you could read the list of churches that he's writing to there. But there's this idea of a dispersed, a scattered people that now have a new hope. But he calls them exiles. Now, now, the word that in our translation, the ESV, English Standard Version, translated exiles, in some translations uh, could be strangers, sojourners, uh, different words that are helpful to reflect on. What is the human experience? What is the nature of life in the world? Uh, there's a sort of a, a strangeness. Uh, we're, we're strangers here. There's a, a certain lack of connection. Um, we're sojourners, we're going through life. The choice of the word exiles, that, to, to translate it that way, uh, one of the things that has going for it is it embeds um, his address in this letter in a deep theological theme that we see throughout the Bible from the very beginning of the Bible, this idea of humanity in exile. And so it's uh, not the only term that can be used, but it's a helpful term because it helps us understand if we enter the world of the Bible, what is the human experience? And so, um, you know, human beings have um, certain hungers. If you're, if you're hungering for food, it's because we're meant to eat. We need something to fuel our bodies. If you're thirsting, we need liquids. We need it to live. There are certain, certain desires that we have for satisfaction, for longing, for uh, to be at rest, things like that that those instincts point to something that should satisfy. Thirst is meant to be satisfied with liquid. But we're in a, in, a, in a strange situation where we have these desires for things that the world is not really satisfying. And that's by design. That's how we were made. Now, the Bible opens up with God creating humanity. Genesis 2, humanity is formed and placed in a garden. 
And from our experience of the world, there's probably so much of that garden that could help you recognize why that was considered a paradise. It would be aesthetically pleasing. Uh, it seemed to be comfortable air in the way it's described. Um, there would be things to eat. They had productive work to do that wasn't overwhelming and stressful. And there are all these things just in that one chapter that through our experience, we could see why this was considered a paradise. But the one thing that's important in the description that, that maybe Maybe we don't have as much intuitive insight to as that what made Eden um, essentially life-giving was the presence of God, God who alone has the power to give life and to sustain life. He placed Adam and Eve in his presence. That's the description in, in, in chapter 2 of Genesis. He, he forms them and he places them in this garden, this good place, and he walks with them. He's present with them. And that's a picture of the kind of fullness of things being right. Um, but the story, if you're familiar with it, ends with being cast out of his presence. And we still eat, we still work. Now everything is harder and everything is frustrating and God is still real and God can still be found. But we probably don't have as much of an intuitive sense of, of what his presence is like unless we've had that experience where maybe you've had the great meal <laughs> that you think, wow, to be in a garden where every day you're eating fresh, delicious, beautiful, healthy food sounds wonderful. Um, what is it like to be really uh, connected with God? That's, that's one of the, those things that we have the instinct for but don't have a sufficient experience of. And so in Genesis 2, we have this picture of the world as it should be. And then in Genesis 3, there's a turning where Adam and Eve, uh, Adam means humanity, Eve means mother of the living, uh, they're, they're the fountain of, of humanity. They don't trust God. They don't listen to God. They're deceived that though God had warned them and taught them about things that they didn't know, warned them the consequences would be death, what did they know about death? That was just an idea. They needed to trust God who said, don't do this or you will die. And what's interesting is uh, they do wind up dying as an outworking of what they, what they do, but they don't die instantly. You get the impression when he says, if you eat of the tree, you will die, that you're expecting them to die the second that they touch it. But there is the beginning of death. The beginning of death is their exile. They're being cast out of the garden. That's how Genesis 3 ends, where they're sent out. Now, um, if you study Genesis 2 and 3 in real depth, uh, it has so many insights into the human experience. But for some of you, maybe it, it requires too much imagination. <laughs> it sounds almost mythical, where you're dealing with a garden and a talking animal, and you find yourself saying, um, what does that look like? What, what was the big deal about eating this fruit? That's an understandable question. What was so terrible about it? Well, then what may be helpful to you is to read Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel. Because Genesis 3 records the, the temptation in a world that we only have access to as it's reported, the, this glorious, perfect world that we don't live in. Genesis 4 has echoes of the same story except in the world in which we live, the story of Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. And there are similar components of temptation, of sin, and of exile. And so the temptation comes to Cain. Um, and where was he tempted? He was tempted with his own weakness and his own struggle. There's something about whatever Abel is doing. Abel is walking with God in a way that God is pleased with. But God in kindness says to Cain, you're falling short. Now, again, it's a kindness because there's an opportunity there. There's great feedback. There's an, there's an invitation. Um, you can do better. And what does he do? What do human beings now who have this resentment, this distance, this separation, the experience of shame, 
fallenness, the kinds of things that flow out of Genesis 3. He has the opportunity to look at his brother with admiration as a role model and to look at God in his kindness and to do better. But instead, because he can't do anything to God, what can you do to God? He kills his brother. And that's how he deals with it. And so he's tempted and he gives in to temptation. Uh, if you can't understand how eating fruit of a tree is disobedience, you should understand how killing your brother is. That is something that is terrible. Uh, he did it, and the result was exile. Now, not from the garden, but from the presence of God, and that's, that's the end of the story of Cain and Abel, um, where God says to Cain, I am going to now send you out as a wanderer in the world, and Cain is overwhelmed. This is more than I can bear. But in that moment, you find yourself, if you read it, wondering how much does he really understand how hard it will be to be without the goodness of God's presence. It seems that what he's experiencing is the fear of not having the presence of God's protection. What he says is, this is more than I could bear, this is overwhelming, why? Because people out there will try to kill me. See, it's not that I delighted in your presence, but, but falling short rather than seeking greater delight, I did something stupid that got me cast out of your presence and now I'm afraid I'll lose my protection. What's his fear? that people will do to him what he has done to others. That's his big fear, that maybe the world is as wicked as he is. And so he's sent out into the world. And it's that picture of humanity and wandering, and particularly the chance that he had, the invitation that he had, Cain, you can do better. But, but Cain's unwillingness, um, and so he, his resentment uh, was there, and so he strikes out and he winds up being exiled and he loses the good that he had. And that is part of the human condition. You know, when we think of, of exile and alienation from God, one way of thinking of it, that is a little bit hard but makes sense to us, which is that God hands us over to our own desires. You know, if you have a, a, a guest in your home um, who's staying with you and that person is stealing from you and the neighbors are complaining about there being a nuisance and the police come one day because they find out that they're outside doing things, illegal things, um, you might talk to that person to say, you know what, this isn't good, maybe you should go. And if the person says, I would rather, you know, be out on the street than staying here with you trying to control me, that would make sense if that person went away. And so the narrative of exile, for us to say, well, God handed us over to our own desires and we're just willing to, uh, to deal with the consequences of it. Um, but you know, if you had somebody who was stubborn, who was in your home and acting destructively, it wouldn't be wrong for you to say, you can't stay. <laughs> I'm giving you chances, but at this point you need to leave. You can't be in my presence if you were going to be harmful. The exile, one aspect of it is God handing us over to our own foolish desires, but there is a sense where God draws a line and says, you can't continue this way. You can't kill your brother and expect to stay in my presence in relationship with me. And so God sends Cain out, and it is a bearing the consequences of his own action, but it is God also creating a line in his holiness saying, you can't do this if you were going to be with me. And so the response that we have, the problem is, um, if we self-exile, if we say, you know what, I'm not interested in God, I want this kind of life, I'm willing to bear the consequences, God could seem like a friendly force somewhere in the background. But it's when we get the sense that we're falling short, and we realize, well, then I'm not in control because the self-exile is, well, maybe one day I'll decide I want to go back and just assume God will accept me. 
But if we realize that, that we're doing things where, where God in control says, you can't do this and remain in my presence, when we realize we want to go back, then there's something about the human heart, our shameful uh, countenance, that responds with spite. So this week, I read a story of a kind of exile. This was in Birmingham, Alabama, not major news, but if you read heavy metal blahs, which I generally don't, um, but in this case, came across this one incident uh, at a concert at a small venue. This was not a big arena. Two guys got kicked out. Now, I imagine in a nightclub, that's not unusual. But on the other hand, you have to think, what do you have to do to get kicked out of a heavy metal concert? Because in the New York Library, you could see at some point where it's just like, you're too loud, you're on the computer too long, you really shouldn't be eating here, you need to go somewhere else. It's kind of like, look, you could drink, we're not going to ask any questions if you're on drugs. Yell as loud as you like, nobody could hear you. Push each other around, that just seems to be part of what we're doing. What did you do to get kicked out? In the story, because that's not the interesting piece, I don't know what they did that got them kicked out, but they got kicked out of the club and they were angry about it. So then they're going to fight the bouncer who kicked them out. And because this wasn't major, it wasn't the BBC that reported on this, I don't know how accurate the facts are, but apparently one of the bouncers pulled out a gun, doesn't strike me as professional, but apparently it intimidated the people who got kicked out enough that they gave up and they left. So what do you do at that point when you've been overpowered? You've, you've been warned, you've been kicked out, you tried to fight your way back in, um, and you weren't allowed. What do you do? Well, I would like to think that we could create some reflection exercises for the person to go home and maybe think about their behavior and, and come back with an apology, and maybe we could create a little mediatory uh, situation. Well, uh, without that kind of counsel, the one guy got in his car and then drove it into the front of the nightclub. And so he didn't get very far in. He did. It seemed he was aiming to hit the bouncer, make contact with him. But as often happens when we act spitefully, who got the most injured? And if you could guess, if you drive a car into a building, that's not going to go well for you. Probably didn't stop to put on his seatbelt. Uh, and so here the angry guy, um, nothing he can do. Well, I'm just going to act destructive and do damage. And we live in a world where, where we're told you know, there is something missing that we all long for. And, and what does it take to go back? And as soon as we realize we're, we're helpless, we don't, we, don't just, we don't just get it at our own decision. Um, when we are affected by shame, when we deal with confusion, when we're part of the world in its wrongdoing, it, it stirs in us anger, hostility, and spite. And sometimes it comes out theologically, you rail against God, but sometimes God seems so far and maybe even non-existent that you take it out on those around you, that hatred, that anger. There's this picture of humanity as exiled, as wandering, um, that tells a story that, that there's, there, there are deep troubles in this world, that, that even if the world with all of its goodness could satisfy, there's something about the way that we conduct ourselves in the world that prevents us from flourishing. Uh, we're impatient, we're petty, we're spiteful. If I get angry, I want other people to be angry, and so I'm going to spread it. And it makes it hard to really experience the goodness of life. Um, one of the great thinkers of Christian history was Augustine, wrote many years ago, and um, one of his works, not as readable as the Confessions, that's, that's sort of, you know, maybe this first kind of autobiography, very readable, his work, The City of God, a bit bigger, a little bit tougher to get through, um, but he writes it at, at the time when the Roman Empire is falling apart, 
And he's reflecting on this empire and the city of Rome now losing its power to, you know, to, to vandals attacking them. Um, he reflects on this city, this eternal city that he calls the city of God. A, a vision you see in the Bible, something that's um, part of the Christian hope. And then he talks about the contrast of the city of man, the city of humanity. And it's interesting to think about human cities. When you read the exile of Cain in Genesis 4, you follow his genealogy. And it's, it could be a confusing genealogy because his descendants start to do good things. They make technological advances. Um, they seem to figure out how to make certain tools and uh, to thrive with certain expressions of the arts, the kinds of things that we do when we come together and build cities. And that's what Cain did. Cain built a city. And, and that's good. What I say it's confusing is because um, that seems right. That's human, using human wisdom, intelligence, creating community. But you follow the line of Cain and a few generations down, and the violence of Cain becomes exponential. That he has a descendant, Lamech, who boasts of his violence and vengeance. And it's that story in the Bible that then you follow that story down until the, the most famous city in Genesis 11, Babel, where, where they come together to build a city, and God sees what they're doing. And he realizes that the potential they have as a common humanity with wisdom to do good, uh, with their corruption, is causing problems, and so he scatters them. That's Genesis 11. That the, the city of Babel, the people are scattered, and their languages are confused to minimize the harm that they can do. And then Genesis 12 begins a counter-narrative. Abraham, who's also called to be a wanderer, but he's also called to have descendants who, who live on this earth with, with hope of the promise of a future city that God is building. And they live on the earth uh, by faith in that, and it creates within the world a, a, a new promise, new plan. So Augustine, writing on this, um, talks about the city of man and its corruption, and the city of God and its unique glory and how it offers a better vision. When Peter writes to elect exiles, he's writing to people who now struggle in the cities of humanity, but who have learned to set their hope on a greater future reality that's transformative. And in the edition I have of Augustine's City of God, Thomas Merton writes the introduction. Quick, uh, quick anecdote or, or fact, Thomas Merton was baptized at the church right across the street, uh, across Broadway. So Merton, writing, this was a number of years ago, wrote this uh, in his introduction. He says, those who love God love a supreme and infinite good that cannot be diminished by being shared. Those who place their hopes on the possession of created and limited goods are doomed to conflict with one another and to everlasting fear of losing whatever they may have gained. Hence, the city that is united in charity, and by charity he means love, That's, he's using a biblical word, not just caring for people with, with needs, but he's talking about love. Hence, the city that is united in charity will be the only one to possess true peace, because it is the only one that conforms to the true order of things, the order established by God. The city that is united merely by an alliance of temporal interests cannot promise itself more than a temporary cessation from hostilities, and its order will never be anything but a makeshift. And so he creates this contrast. Um, one, a city doomed to conflict 
or a city where he described no infinite goods can be diminished by being shared. That's an interesting thing. Uh, when you have love, the idea is the more you have of it, the more you express it, the more it grows. Um, but the tangible things of our city, there's a lot to go around, but once you start to have little left, we turn against one another. And that's where he also contrasts uh, being united by an alliance of temporal interests that he says uh, promises temporary cessation of hostilities. You find people that you could work together on. You find people that you get along with. You find people that you're growing with, and it's wonderful, but there's a temporary cessation of hostility that at some point, um, when the resources get scarce, when somebody proves to be better than others, then there's a breakdown. But the contrast is a city united in charity, united in love, leading to peace. And it's that city that we have a vision for in the Bible, that, that the Bible begins in a garden where Adam and Eve are given a task of, of working in it, a task that humanity never finishes. But the book of Revelation, the end, is a city that comes down, a city built by God. And so we were scattered, and one day we'll be regathered. But in the meantime, we're called to recognize the dynamics of earthly cities. And as residents of New York City, we should be very positive on all that's good, the talent, the resources, the opportunities here. We should be grateful to be citizens of this city. We should also be very sober to recognize that besides our common interests, as soon as there's a breakdown, we are very vulnerable to turning against one another. And there's a city where that doesn't happen, where the, the resources and the currency uh, are not so limited. And so we are called to live in our city or whatever city you may uh, make your home um, to enjoy the goodness of what's there, but to have a changed relationship to status and to possessions and to see yourself uh, as somebody that's not wandering through this earth trying to satisfy your deepest cravings with temporal things because that creates cities that self-destruct. And so one question that, that skeptics of religion will, will often ask, fair enough, is if your hope is a heavenly city, well, then what investment do you have in this one? Why, why bother feeding people who are starving? Why bother spending all day in a laboratory trying to solve a specific problem like cure a disease? Why bother doing that if this world is passing away anyway? And it's a fair question, and no doubt religious people have been guilty of just escaping to an imaginative world. But if you look historically, the people that actually had the, the greatest energy to keep going in serving the world in self-sacrificial ways have often been people of faith, people who have uh, believed that they can trust themselves to Christ and therefore live in this world as citizens of that future reality with courage, with wisdom, with conviction. And so take Abraham, for example. Abraham, who is called to be a counter figure to the people of Babel. So Abraham did not have an easy life, if you read about him in Genesis 12 and the chapters following. Um, he was not a perfectly moral person. He did not get everything he wanted. And so if, if the vision of, of, of faith is kind of an escape to a world where everything seems perfect in contrast to this world, that's not how the Bible presents things. The Bible presents a real hope, something that's tangible, something actual missing that is now brought back into your life. And Abraham, though his life was not easy and though he was not perfect, he prospered. He grew. He seemed uh, through his work and the management of his resources, and he used them in ways that benefited others. Um, but James describes him as a friend of God. One of the things that shows that he wasn't simply um, a guy whose mind was, was in the clouds his hospitality, 
several instances where Abraham welcomes human beings. See, Abraham himself was called to leave his own home and to be a wanderer. When people wandered by, Abraham, who knew that he was not in his permanent possession, but having hope in that, was able to welcome people who were passing by and without knowing it, entertained angels. And is that not what we're called to, to see ourselves as citizens of a heavenly Jerusalem? But so long as Jesus has not pulled us out of the world to live in this world according to those values, which means that we should be sympathetic to wanderers and to strangers, whether it's literal, the refugee, or whether it's spiritual, uh, the coworker who has every right to be in New York and can vote and has all sorts of access, but is experiencing alienation. They feel like a wanderer on the earth. They have no real roots. We are called to be a people who welcome them, the citizens of our great city, New York, to say, but there's a greater, more enduring city. And so, uh, yes, we are a scattered people, but understanding that we experience exile allows us as human beings to say, you know, when this world doesn't satisfy me, it makes sense. And that's important because otherwise, the way that the world works is if you're not satisfied, you're falling short of our standard. You're not good enough. There's something you're not doing right, and therefore, if you can't keep up, uh, don't drag us down. And that's where we get stuck. We get homeless, hopeless, where the picture instead is to understand the world is filled with good things. Enjoy any good thing God puts into your life, but don't hope in it. Don't build your life on it. And so if you're dissatisfied, that's okay. That's okay. You can keep going. And so, so we're told that the world will never fully satisfy us, but, but God will give us strength for today to keep going because one day we will be satisfied. And it's that hope that then allows us to face all of the sorts of things that we're not naturally equipped to face. And so what I want to do now is talk about being called back. There's something about the human experience of being scattered, of being exiled, that, that all of us have some connection to, even if we may um, use different vocabulary or have different specific experiences. There's something that says, this world is not a safe and hospitable place. There, there has to be something more enduring. And so, uh, having looked at the, the phrase, the exiles of the dispersion, I now want to go back to verse 2 and look at that word elect, uh, written to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, um, the New Testament was written in ancient Greek where there were not punctuations. And so, um, it would be interesting to think, should we put a comma between elect and exiles. And I don't know that we should, because I think I'm going to leave you with this phrase, elect exiles, the tension, both of reality. We're wanderers, but we're also called. But I think he's writing to the elect, comma, exiles of the dispersion. You know, he's, he's, he's speaking to their reality. You are people who are scattered. You're dispersed. Um, but I'm addressing you with this one word that is filled with biblical significance, even if some of us have trouble grasping it, but, but Peter will speak more of it as you go through the, through the book. What does it mean to be elect? It means to be those whom God has called, God has set his love on. You now have a place, you belong. And so he's writing not to exiles, he's writing to people that have found a home. He's writing to the elect, exiles of the dispersion, people who are currently dissatisfied, and the context of the book is people that are facing an increasing persecution and hostility. That's the historical context of First Peter. But he writes to them first to say, but you are those 
chosen and loved by God, even if for now we're scattered and not able to encourage one another, so I'm doing it through a letter. And you know, it's interesting, when you think of the Christian message, um, there's a number of people that maybe are more ready to hear it. And those are people who have a relationship to rejection. Maybe the group that we know most ready to hear it, or we can imagine or understand or maybe observe, are those who are rejected by our world. You know, uh, the world has different uh, ways of relating, different, you know, here's what makes you an insider, here's the standard, here's what you need to do. And anytime people fall out of that, either passively, I'm just not good enough, I don't belong, or actively being, um, being marginalized as individuals and as groups, people who have experienced the rejection of the world, when Jesus comes, and if you really do a close reading of the Gospels, who he is, what he teaches, when he says, follow me, uh, what are the signs of his coming, his healing, his renewing, his welcoming? Often people who have been rejected in the world more immediately see the relevance of Jesus because they see this is so different from, from my peers, from my other context, and there's a greater openness. That doesn't mean everybody welcomes it, but people that are more quick to welcome the invitation of Jesus are often those who are experiencing the rejection of others. But here's a second category of people that maybe we don't think about as much, but those who, who reject the world, <laughs> um, there are many people who look at at how mainstream society does things, and, and they say, this, this just doesn't seem healthy. This doesn't seem right. It seems like we're just busying ourselves, perpetuating the same problems. And that discomfort makes people say, you know, I don't know that I want to be, you know, just a guy that, that works a 90-hour week in order to be able to brag about something when I go to a party, or just does a job that I hate in order to retire as soon as I can, or fills myself with whatever the standard activities are. Uh, there are always people that would say, in my not being satisfied, rather than, than keep going and trying to be satisfied, I'm just going to accept there's something about this world that I don't fully connect with. And those are also people who see Jesus come and announce a world in line with everything that they're realizing they're disconnected from, and they're more ready to hear. And that doesn't mean all of them will accept uh, what Jesus has to say, and it also means that sometimes Jesus comes to people who are happy and joyful and having wonderful lives, and he calls them, and their lives just got better. But those categories of rejection, those who have been rejected and those who are rejecting the world, um, have a quicker insight into what Jesus is doing when he comes and says, follow me. Because what he's doing is he's going to gather the exiles. He comes as a messenger of God who says, the time has come to come back. You know, God scattered you, and you can't find your way back to him. But God has sent me, the son, to call you and to make it possible so that you could come back. And what is it so compelling of Jesus we should listen to him? Well, it's not simply that, that he sees the people that the world doesn't see. It's not simply that he doesn't buy in to the values that the world has buy in on, um, but it's that in order to make it possible for us to come back, uh, he comes as the fulfillment of, uh, of the fullness of who God is, his truth, his power, his glory. And the question for us is, what would we do if God came, if, if, if what we need is his presence the most? Well, wouldn't we rejoice? Wouldn't we welcome him? Wouldn't we bring God into our midst? And that's how Jesus is presented. Jesus did those things. He healed the sick, and he announced good news to the poor, and he spoke the truth. And what did we do? 
we marveled until we got together as a crowd, and then we realized we're angry, and we hated him, and we rejected him, and we sentenced him to death that he would be crucified. And that's the human problem. Do we really want the presence of God? We desperately need the presence of God. There's something in us that needs change, that needs penetration to break this. And the Christian message is unique in that God doesn't simply show us something better so that we could turn around. But through the rejection of Jesus, he makes it possible that the rejected can be accepted. To those who are tired of this world as it is, they realize they could be citizens of a greater world, a future reality, a, a genuine, tangible hope. And it's that gospel reality that says Jesus doesn't simply show a better way. He doesn't simply tell us of a better way. He doesn't simply teach about a better way. But Jesus really is the better way. And so as, as uh, Peter encourages us in verse 3, he speaks about the God, the Father who foreknows, the Spirit who sanctifies, and Jesus who sprinkles with his blood, and to whom we are obedient. And I wonder if we were to pull out those pieces and, and create an order that for them, where we would begin. And the assumption is most of us would begin with obedience. Isn't that where you start? If we have wandered from God, if we've been unfaithful, the first thing to do is to get it back together. And then through obedience, God will sprinkle us with the blood of Jesus and forgive us. It, wouldn't that be an appropriate way to to meet us in our obedience, and he will sanctify us and, and help us to become more obedient, and then the God who knew us in advance will, will fully know us as we draw near to him. That makes perfect and total sense, but what we're told is every time you try that, it fails because our obedience is insufficient. So I don't know that Peter is presenting an order here logically, but he does begin with a God who foreknows. It's not that you knew God, but that God knew you in advance. And therefore, this word elect, it's an uncomfortable word when you think, well, I banished myself, but I'll return to God whenever I like. And then it pokes our pride. Well, well, how come I don't have the choice? Why does God get to choose? It's when you're seeking meaning, whether it's with God or apart from God, and you find that you can't grasp it, that all of a sudden you realize there's a comfort in realizing my life and my destiny does not depend on my choices, especially when it's too late when I've made a pattern of bad choices. God foreknows us. He, he knew us before we were born. He knew every wrong thing we would do. And by writing to us as the elect, we're told, but yet he chooses to set his love on us. Um, one of the things we as a church believe in is what we describe as an unconditional election. Every Christian using the terminology of the New Testament has to believe in election just because the vocabulary is all over the New Testament. The question is, what does it mean that God elects? And some would say, through his foreknowledge, God can see those who will choose him, and he meets them. Or God will see those who are obedient, and based on that, he will choose them. But the Bible seems to portray an unconditional election. So 1 John, we love because God first loved us. What does John say? Because God is love. It sounds circular. Why does God love? because God is love. It's not that he knows who will be most useful in the kingdom. It's not that he makes a reasonable investment that he shows kindness to people who will be more obedient and serve him. But having sent people out of his presence, his purpose was always to reconstitute, to regather. And our hope is that his choosing is not based on what we're currently doing. <laughs> That's our hope when we're, what we're currently doing is failing when you fear rejection, when you think God might be like uh, 
your friend in pickup basketball who doesn't want you at 5'6 to be on his team. We're given a different vision to say, the hope is not that through your obedience you will be sanctified, but through God and his grace who loves you. Why? Uh, We don't know, because God is love. And what that does, while it doesn't affirm our pride, it helps us in our weakness. It helps us in those moments where we say, God, at this point I'm failing, and I don't think that you would still choose to remain with me. Do you have to fall back and say, but you're an elect exile, you're a wanderer, you're a scatterer, he's calling you back, and it doesn't depend on your obedience. And so God who knew you has called you, he has set his love on you, and that's where sanctification begins. Sanctification, it's a theological word about holiness being set apart. Before he's changing you, he's bringing you into a new reality, a new community, a new identity. That's what we're going to be reading about in First Peter. And he is sanctifying those who he foreknew. He is now changing you so that through the sprinkling of the blood of Christ that becomes a reality through the application of the Spirit, now you are actually set free. Because it wouldn't be obedience if you were just doing it to earn God's favor. But when you have God's promise given to you, and you realize it doesn't depend on my meeting the mark, but I've, given, I've been given new life. I have a new chance. Why would I continue to do the things that would distance God? Why would I not rather receive the cleansing that comes through Christ? Why would I not step into the joy of sanctification? Why would I not know the God who knew me and be faithful and be obedient? That's where Christian freedom comes from. That's where the life, the life that we're pictured in First Peter is presented to us. And so as we end this morning, um, I want to encourage you to be obedient, but to be obedient as an outworking of a new identity. And so the question is, are you resting in the goodness and the kindness and mercy of God? Do you, do you believe that the rejection of Jesus makes possible our acceptance? If you do... And that's the teaching of the Bible. Then you don't need to keep working so hard. You can rest. You don't need to keep swimming that figure eight, eight hours a day. But you could stop. And you could receive God's kindness. And once that happens, then there's a strengthening that enables us to become like God. So here's a second question for us as a church. Do we love each other with the love that God has for us? And by that, what kind of conditions do we put on each other? And yes, there is a mutuality, and yes, there are boundaries. But do we choose to love people? Or do we respond to something lovely in them? I think an area of growth for us to be as a community to say, people are welcome whether or not they share our interests, our habits, our lifestyle, our experience. But we're going to love people the way that God has loved us. We're going to choose to set our love on people. We're not going to make them earn it. We're going to be gracious and generous and believe that there will be a building up. And then, so here's the last thing. Are we going to be hospitable to exiles? If somebody comes in having been rejected by the world or intuitively rejecting the world as they know it, will we give them space to be patient and figure it out in our midst, even if they don't have our language and our answers? Are we prepared to entertain angels? Should God send somebody? And we're never going to tell by looking at their outside who they are. Are we going to welcome people and say, Lord, uh, when I was wondering, you called me back, and now as a community, we want that message to be loud and clear. Come, be part of us. We're not the better social club in New York. We're the people who are satisfied. 
that God is good. Uh, and let's, let's make sure that we're going out into a world and realize that people aren't talking about it in New York, but people are grappling with the reality of rejection. We have a message that says, but God is different. Jesus Christ wants you to follow him. So why don't you come and follow him with us? Let's do this together, friends. Let me pray. Our Father, you have invited us to worship this morning. We're here because you gathered us, you called us, you've set us apart. We're not a better church, we're not a better people. We are a most fortunate people that your spirit has opened our eyes to your love and your grace. And we pray that you would give us more of that spirit for those who believe and are struggling, for those who don't believe but want to because they're longing for something deep. Lord, do that spiritual work that we would set aside um, whatever our identity, whatever our works, whatever our merit, and that we would find rest in Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we're all a bit stressed. We're all a bit struggling. May we find rest for our souls. And we pray that once we are rested, we would have an energy that would ready us to serve in this great city as those who love New York, but even more than that, love the New Jerusalem, that heavenly reality. Uh, help us to have our minds and hearts to where we are going so that along the way, uh, we are faithful to serve you. Uh, bless us in that way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.